0: Welcome to River Cafe Table 4, a production of iHeartRadio and Atomize Studios.
1: In his most recent book, A Beautiful, Clear Collection of Essays, Language of Truth, Salman Rushdie, my friend, writes in his first line that before books, there were stories, and that children ask for stories as they ask for food. Stories and food, food and stories, food and family. Salman has been a member of our family for over 30 years. When we were planning dinners, when Salman was coming, I would be thinking about what to eat, and my husband Richard and my son Rue would be planning to make sure that the ping-pong balls and the bats were in top condition. For Salman was one of the few people who could beat Richard at the game. When I was once falsely quoted as saying to Rue, Why don't you let Salman win? Salman almost didn't speak to me for over a year. (laughs) But speaking is what we're going to do today. That's what we're here for. Hi, Salman.
2: Hello, Ruthie.
1: So it's nice. We're here in the River Cafe on a rainy day for Mm -hmm. a change, but uh, would you like to read the recipe?
2: Yes. This is a recipe for marinated grilled lamb. (laughs) Serve six, the ingredients. Uh, Five garlic cloves, peeled and crushed. Two tablespoons chopped fresh rosemary leaves. A good pinch of coarsely ground black pepper. One leg of spring lamb, boned and butterflied. Two tablespoons of fresh lemon juice. Three tablespoons of olive oil and one tablespoon of sea salt. Mix together the garlic, rosemary and black pepper. Rub into the cut side of the meat. Place the lamb in a shallow dish and pour over the lemon juice and olive oil. Turn over a couple of times, then cover and leave to marinate at room temperature overnight or for at least four hours, turning occasionally. Remove from the marinade and pat dry. Season and carefully place on a hot grill. Brown on one side until very dark, then turn over. Lower the heat and continue to cook for at least eight minutes on each side. Serve with salsa verde or fresh horseradish sauce.
1: Thank you. So when I asked you to uh, choose a recipe, you you didn't even take a breath. You didn't pause. You just said immediately grilled marinated lamb. I was wondering why.
2: Well, you know, in my family, we've always been big carnivores Mm. (laughs) we we eat a lot of meat so I know, you know, meat is unfashionable in some quarters these days but it was always going to be a meat recipe and I'm just thinking which was the thing that I always chose when I came to eat here and it was always that
1: yeah, it's so, on the menu today. So, well, you know. And I think, interestingly enough, it was actually on the very first menu of the very first day, which had like four things on the menu mm. at about average price of five pounds. And one of them is grilled marinated lamb.
2: Well, there you are. You see, you go right back to the beginning here.
1: Yeah. and do you remember, I think that's probably when we met was just before the River Cafe opened, maybe early 80s, mid-80s. Yeah, yeah. And so, but I'd really like to start with, with, with Mumbai. You were born there and... What are your uh, memories of food and memories of... Well, I was of born and are.
2: raised there, and, and um, my memory of food is home cooking. You know? yeah. and My mother's kitchen and the kind of flavors that came out of that. My mother didn't like very highly spiced food. Mm-hmm. You know, she didn't like chilies, um, so the food was always quite mild, in fact. My sister, Samine and I grew up on this food.
1: So your mother was the
2: cook. She cooked. Well, she cooked, but she also... I mean, we had you know, a cook, and mm. she would always train the cook in the food of the household. Mm. You know? And one of the things I've always thought about India is that in middle-class kitchens, kitchens which, which employ cooks, there's always a, a copy book, as it's called, hanging on a hook. And in that book are the recipes of the family. Right. And I've always thought if somebody could just go and yeah. gather the recipes in those yeah. copy books, that would be the yeah. greatest Indian cookbook of all.
1: Do you remember your grandmother? Was your mother's mother a cook?
2: Yeah, my mother's mother was not a cook. My mother's mother sort of shouted at cooks.
1: Ah, okay. <laughs> yeah. In what way do you think she knew what she wanted? But she well, didn't yeah, want to she
2: make was it. a grumpy old lady. You know, mm. and I don't know. I wouldn't have liked to be cooking in her kitchen. Oh,
1: really? And what about your mother and her? Do you but think? My
2: mother was very a gentle person, you know. And and I also had an ayah, a, a nanny from South India, came from Mangalore, which has its own very distinctive cooking her kind of pickles and chutneys got into Midnight's Children because I grew up on those. There was a particular green chutney, which is, which is famously in the book. It was just uh, a lot of green things chopped up with a lot of chilies. It was a very particular South Indian recipe mm. that, um, that arrived in our house through her. Uh, Goan, South Indian ayah, Mary Menezes, she was called, lived to 102.
1: <laughs> Did she? Yeah,
2: spoke seven languages and was illiterate. There's a line somewhere in Midnight's Children where where the character, the narrator, talks about stirring feelings into mm-hmm. food. And uh, I always believed that, that if you're in a good mood, mm. the food tastes one way. Mm. And if you're in a bad mm. mood, the food tastes another way, you know. And that sense of, of emotion, your, your own emotion, getting into the cooking, you know, is something I always thought.
1: Did your mother put emotion into her cooking? Yeah.
2: I mean, yeah. she actually... She wasn't like a great chef, but she enjoyed it. Yeah. She enjoyed it. So the food was enjoyable.
1: What about your father?
2: My father? I don't think he ever fried an egg. He didn't,
1: no, never, never. (laughs) No, I don't think so. Yeah, because I do talk to a lot of men who were discouraged from going into the kitchen, Mm. you know, so that...
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I wasn't discouraged, but I was only 13 when I left home to go to boarding school, so... And then food was a whole other thing. Yeah,
1: yeah. Know. Well, that that contrast. Did you go before we leave uh, Mumbai? Did you, when you were growing up in Mumbai, was food? Would you go to the markets? Because it must have yeah, been a very w- rich culture of food. Well,
2: there's, first of all, there's there's this wonderful covered market in what is now called South Bombay, but was then just called Bombay. Mm. But a place called Crawford Market where you can buy everything from. Like hair dryers to live chickens. Mm. And Crawford Market was an incredibly exciting place to go, thronging with life, very noisy, and as I say, with everything you could imagine buying, including lots and lots of food, and fr- fruit, and vegetables, and, and chickens. Mm.
1: And you were allowed to go there. There was no yeah, kind yeah. Of sense. No, I went, that I went you very were, often there. Did you travel throughout India to be, as Quite a, a child? I mean, Would your parents take you my, on vacation? See, my
2: father's family. Was originally from Delhi, although mm-hmm. we, they, my parents had moved to Bombay before I was born. But he had still had a lot of connections, and he had business in Delhi. And sometimes I would go with him and stay in a hotel in Delhi and sort of mess around while he did his work. Mm. You know. But
1: would you go to restaurants there?
2: Yeah, and I mean, and Delhi, of course, is is the heart of of North Indian cuisine. So the, what's Mughlai cooking, as it's called, the cooking that is left behind by the Mughal Empire,
1: right? And how does that differ from southern? It's richer. Mm.
2: You know, it, it uses a lot of yogurt and ghee and stuff like that. And, and uh, it's also, I mean, the further south in India you go, the more vegetarian the cuisine becomes. Right. And the further north you go, the more, more yeah. meat oriented yeah. it, it goes. And that's just the difference between between Muslim culture in the north where the, where the Muslim conquerors were there for hundreds of years. And the Hindu culture of the south, which is largely vegetarian. Right.
1: And when you came, as you said, you said you were thirteen. When you let, did, your whole family come to London? No, I just
2: got sent to boarding they school. They sent
1: you to boarding school from. Yeah. Wow! Well, so yeah. wow, well, <laughs> I'm sure there are, there's a lot we could explore in the difference between, as a 13-year-old, going to England. But food-wise, because food that's is not, where there's we... There's no subject there. What, where know. would you go on that subject? It was dreadful. Was like?
2: no. I mean, mind. the food was kind of inedible, you know. I mean, it, yeah. it, was, it was sort of dreadful school food. But it like this. And when we got overcooked beef burger patties, that was the highlight of the week.
1: Yeah. Did you mind, or did you just get used to it?
2: No, I just... I mean, I didn't like yeah. much about school, and the, and the food was certainly part of what I didn't like. I was quite isolated. Mm. But I really didn't like boarding school. And actually, when I left, I mean, I had got my, my place at Cambridge, but I didn't want to go. You know, and I, I said to my parents, I said, just let me go to university here. It's fine. There's good universities here. I go here. Um, my father had been to King's College, Cambridge, and I had got in. And so he was very keen that I should mm. follow him. And in the end, I went, and actually I'm very glad I went because it was a very different experience than school. You know, I had a much better time.
1: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Help helps is a maxim I believe in. We all carry around stress and hardship, and when we keep it inside, it starts to chip away. Therapy is a safe place, and therapy is for everyone. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp dot com slash Ruthie today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. h E L P dot com slash Ruthie. BetterHelp.com slash Ruthie.
0: I'm Katia Adler, host of the Global Story. Over the last 25 years I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Going from Cambridge to London, you had your own apartment? You,
2: well, you- no, I mean, my college friends and I, there were five of us who rented... Uh, a place just off the New King's Road on the sort of corner of the Wandsworth Ridge Road and the New oh, yeah. King's Road. Yeah, Five-bedroom house, for five pounds each. Yeah,
1: 1960. 1968. 1960, right?
2: 1968, yeah. yeah. And those were the days. Um,
1: and what did you eat there? Do you and remember? There
2: was a kitchen, so we would all pile in and, and make spaghetti and, you know.
1: So London in the 60s. Uh, working in an advertising agency. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You weren't part of the Martini lunch of
2: no, 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 <laughs> no, no. I mean, I I worked in two or three different agencies for a long time at Ogilvy and Mather. But yeah. um, in those days, Ogilvy's was kind of more or less on Waterloo Bridge. I mean, if you were to go all the way down the Strand and turn right to walk over Waterloo Bridge, it was just there. There wasn't much. I mean, there you would you would walk into Covent Garden if you wanted to, you know, get something to eat. Um, so, I mean, I've always remembered the day when the fruit and vegetable market closed in Covent Garden. Do you? Yeah, because what happened is,
1: what year the, was that? Can I ask you? It, one was, thing? it
2: must have been in the early seventies right. somewhere. You know, but what happened was that the entire neighbourhood, the streets, were full of rats. Right. Because the rats all had nothing to eat. Yeah. You know, and they swarmed. I mean, it was amazing. You would walk on the Strand, which yeah. had, had its usual crowds, and there were rats everywhere. Rats. Uh, and the rats headed over the bridge, oh. and I think they found their way to Nine Elms. <laughs> <laughs> that's, right,
1: that's where the new that's right. where the new Covent Garden, the new Covent they Garden moved was. it out. Yeah, yeah, but it
2: was an extraordinary day. Oh, God, um, the rats took over London. Oh.
1: And did they? Did Ogilvy and May? Did you? Did you ever meet David Ogilvy? I,
2: I was just in his presence on one occasion. Yeah, but no, I never yeah. met him. But I was working full time to begin with. But but then I managed to get a job which was either two or three days a week. And, and that gave me either four or five days a week to stay home right. and write. Do you have a discipline no, I, you Yeah, write? I mean, my idea, which is probably very bad in terms of how one should eat, is that you should work hungry.
1: Ah, okay. Uh, Tell um, me about that.
2: In other words, you know, if, if, if I've had a nice meal, I can't write. And hmm. you know, Just I get s- slow and sleepy, you know. And so my view is work first.
1: So what, tell me about your working day and food.
2: Well, I mean, I just, uh, in the morning I uh, have v- virtually nothing other than a cup of coffee. I mean, sometimes I have some fruit juice with it, but that's not much more than that, mm-hmm. really. And then then I go to work, you know. Um, and for how long? How long depends where I am in the writing process. Because I mean, in the early stages of writing a book, when when it's making something out of nothing then you know two or three hours a day and really you're burned out um, and you start writing things that you know you're not going to use. But in the later part of a book, when you're writing a final version, I work all the time. I work like 12 hours, 13, 14 hours a day. And you don't stop to eat? Then I do sometimes because yeah. I the, the hardest thing is the blank page. Once you've got a version there, mm. no matter how approximate it is, Working on that is less difficult than the first act of invention, and then sometimes I do. Yeah, I do sometimes have a bit of lunch. Do you like to go out?
1: Or do you <laughs> yes, stay? I like to
2: go out. Yeah. I mean, you know, living in New York, that's what everybody does. Yeah. I, I do. it Before the pandemic, it's what it's what everybody did, and now again, yeah. it's beginning to be what everybody it's can do. Isn't
1: it? Restaurants. When you walk in a room in a restaurant, what do you like? to see do you have a feeling about well, the, the kind of restaurant you want to be in
2: well you know the grand old restaurants are ones we just have a, a great feeling in them you know mm. if, you, if you walk into Indochine or Balthazar or the Waverley Inn you think this is a place yeah. you want to be this is another one of those places yeah. but also I think what's interesting about places like that like Indochine has been there since the mid-1980s mm-hmm. and the food has never dropped in quality mm. you know I and mean, it's a it's obviously not anymore what it used to be, which was like the hottest ticket in town. But they've never allowed the food to become ordinary. You know? Yeah.
1: When I talked to Michael Caine, he said that he'd never done it, a movie deal that didn't take place in a restaurant. And it mm. was always over a lunch. In Hollywood, yeah. you go out to lunch and you discuss the deal for the movie. Yeah. And then I don't know if that still goes on, but did you do it with your publishers and your um, agent? Would yeah. it, it I, always be a,
2: over food? I remember... When I was looking for an American agent being taken out for a very swanky lunch at the Russian tea room Uh. by a very powerful agent whose name I won't mention, and she was so kind of grand at me that it was actually off-putting. And meanwhile, there was this other agent that was wooing me who had an office which was one and a half rooms. It was like him and a secretary and a Xerox machine, but he was so... Dynamic and energetic. Mm. I thought I want that one, not yeah. the fat yeah. cat. Yeah.
1: You know,
2: and that's how I came to appoint Andrew Wiley, and you know, it's the best decision I ever made. Yeah,
1: you learn a lot about somebody in a restaurant. Yeah, it teaches you. Do they do they thank the waiter? Yes. Are they do they share their food? Do they eat quickly? And I think that's why people go for dates in a restaurant, don't yeah. you? Or yes. why it tells you well? About I mean, the first of
2: all, it tells you if people have good manners. You know, and, and that used to be something. When we were kids, that we were taught, you know, how to behave. Mm. I'm not sure people are quite taught that in the mm. same way now, but and some people have it naturally, mm. you know. Mm. And I think it's incredibly appealing when somebody has good manners, and yes. as you say, when they're polite to the waitstaff.
1: Mm. Or conversely, if they're rude to the waitstaff, you never uh, want if, to see yeah, them again. Yeah, if do. they're
2: rude, forget about it. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's yeah. over. And I'm always shocked when I see that happening. Um, so but, I think good manners and. And you know you are what you eat, aren't you? So it's yeah. it's very yeah. interesting to what see. What
1: about that. food is seduction? Would you ever want to seduce a woman through food, or would you watch? No.
2: no, I don't think that some, works. Some,
1: yeah. <laughs> it does. I've found out from interviewing other people that they can remember the first meal they cooked to woo a woman, you know, or what they, how they tried to, or go to a restaurant to see, you know, what about? Yeah. It's happened the other way
2: around. I mean, one or two people who've cooked meals for me in order to
1: and that and, oh yeah oh, that worked and did that work yes, did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and dates at restaurants do you think that
2: I'm um, I'm not sure that I'm not sure that a restaurant is a great place for a first date yeah I you mean know, it's I think it's more interesting to to do something else I like go for a walk something something with less pressure on it you know um and maybe go out to dinner when you've worked out that you might enjoy spending the time together. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because one of the worst things in the world is to sit in a restaurant and knowing after 10 minutes that you, that you really want to yeah. leave. Yeah, so I think it's a good second date.
1: And what about right now? Who's cooking in your house? How are you cooking? Are you cooking or um, you cook?
2: I'm not going to, you know, I mean, I have a partner and she's yeah, very good both, cook. You, yeah. And also, you know, New York is New York. You can order in. Yeah. And especially in this pandemic, a lot of restaurants as a survival method, you know, restaurants which never delivered are now delivering. And you want to do that because you want to help these places survive. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet
1: home. I've read every one of your novels and I got to know you through your novels and a really Pivotal book in my life was *The Jaguar Smile* oh. because, as an American, Nicaragua mm. was so close. It was so intensely political and and resonated. And what? Tell me about going to Nicaragua. Well, what, what was happened that?
2: was it in the mid '80s when the Contra War began. I became kind of involved with the thing here called the Nicaraguan Solidarity Campaign and I was involved in 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 you know protesting against the way in which. The then American administration was siding with the Contras mm. in, in order to try and crush this tiny country, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I was at a literary festival in New York, in fact, and I met various Nicaraguan writers and so on who had been invited there, and they they said they invited me, so I went as a kind of guest of the Writers Union, I guess, you know, and 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 I went. I thought. I would probably write something, but I, I thought it would probably be a newspaper article or something and, and instead, what happened is i got i kind of fell in love with the place and I got obsessed with its tragedy you know, and and came back and ended up ended up writing something mm. I mean, it's a short book, but it's, it's a a, but it's a book like thing and and one of the things that, talking of food that was heartbreaking was how great the shortages were. You know, tell I, me. I mean, I remember staying in this, in this guest house, this sort of government guest house that was made available to me. And in the morning, going down to breakfast, and there were, you know, two boiled eggs. And I said, I had this interpreter uh, who was always there with me because my Spanish not very good. Um, and I said to her, look, you know, I don't, I don't really eat a big breakfast. And she said to me, you know, you should eat these eggs because they were the only eggs in the market today. Mm. Y- they've been provided for you eat the damn eggs. And that just was one indication, you know, of how impoverished. We went to... um, I remember meeting a farmer who said that it was so hard for him to make any money that when he wanted to service his tractor, he had to sell a cow. Mm. That's not a thing you can do very long, you know, because you run out of cows. So it was... Horrifying how badly off people were, and then how kind of in a way pro-American they were. Mm. You know, so they want the, the the things that everybody loved. Everybody loved Major League Baseball. You know, and crazy about baseball. Mm. But the thing is that the dictatorship which preceded the Sandinistas, the Somoza dictatorship, mm. had been entirely in the thrall of the United States. Mm. You know, and and the tragedy of Nicaragua is that the Sandinista revolution spawned another dictatorship. Yeah. You know, so, so that now we have the Ortega brothers, Daniel Ortega, who is as bad as any Somoza. I mean, I did, on one occasion, I actually had dinner at the house of Daniel Ortega. Oh, did you? with the whole Sandinista leadership. And there, there was kind of a, a it was being explained to me, the, the banquet food, you know, but, but the banquet food felt a little revolting, given yeah. the, what I'd experienced in the rest of the country.
1: What was it, do you remember?
2: Well, it was great heaping dishes of, of beef, things that nobody in the country could dream of. you know. Mm-hmm. And, and um, the funny thing was that I thought, okay, they know that I'm here to write, so they know that they're on the record. But I thought if I put a tape recorder on the table, it'll completely change the conversation and everybody will speak to the tape recorder. Mm. And so, but I thought I need to make a record of this is, you know, six of the nine-man Sandinista directorate is round the table. So what I did was I, I invented a stomach upset Oh, back to food. <laughs> yeah. I said, I'm sorry, my stomach. And I would go to the bathroom and I'd scribble yeah. like crazy yeah. in my pocket. Yeah. And then I'd come back and sit down and listen for a while. And I'd say, I'm sorry, I really have to go again. <laughs> I'd rush back to the bathroom. And that's how I managed to keep some kind of a record of the dinner. But, um, yeah, it was a very intense experience, Nicaragua. Yeah. You know, it's, the first, it's a, such a beautiful country and in such terrible shape. When you travel to
1: well, Nicaragua to write, to Italy, to Spain, to India, to wherever you go, do you think about the food yeah. that you're going to eat in that yeah. culture? Yeah, I mean,
2: I remember, you know, like just before the pandemic, a few months before I was able to go to a literary event in, in Oaxaca in Mexico and they eat amazing stuff. They eat grasshoppers. Yeah,
1: they do. <laughs> Did you eat a grasshopper Yes, somewhere? you get this whole
2: plate full of fried yeah. grasshoppers. yeah. And yeah. I did eat them. I been mean, that, Have you been I've been to China. I've never been to China. I've been to Hong China, Kong. Yeah. I've been to Hong Kong, but so long ago that it was still British at the mm. time. That's my big hole is the far east of Asia. Mm. You know, the Japan, Vietnam, China, very high on my list of places I'd like to go. Food does a lot to tell you where you are. I mean, one of the things that is sensational about Italy is that it's impossible to have a bad meal. Yeah. You know, just impossible. And I think the same is true of, of places like Paris, that you don't have to mm. go to fancy restaurants. No. You know, you could sit in a corner brasserie and have something delicious. Mm. You know, and, and that kind of culture of food is exciting. Have you ever written about food? Did you ever write a review? Not exactly. I once had to do a thing for, for British Vogue. A couple of years yeah. ago. It's exactly what you were saying about traveling. So they asked me for, like, favorite places in different countries and so on. So, I, yeah. yeah, I wrote about sort of half a dozen restaurants yeah. in different places. Noma, I was lucky enough. Oh, did you go
1: to Noma in yeah. Copenhagen? Yeah, yes, amazing. I did. Um, Remy.
2: It turned out that he was a bit of a fan of mine, so I got a reservation, lucky. <laughs> which yeah. is not easy. And then I had to eat this, like, you know, th- 39-course yeah. meal in two hours.
1: Yeah, it's a temple of food. Do people come up to you in restaurants? Do you Sometimes. Do you find that
2: okay? Sometimes, yeah, but I mean, it's not very often. Um, no.
1: Yeah, growing up in a house where your mother had her, her book and your grandmother had the, 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 the cook and growing up with food and you have a sister who mm. is has not only a cook but she's written books and she's... Very respected in the food world. So tell me what that feels like. Yeah,
2: I think it was sort of a... it happened by accident because you know she's all sorts of things. I mean, she's a very good lawyer. You know, mm. she's she's worked in uh, in kind of community relations a lot of her life, etc. And then I think it's really a, what we what she wanted to do was in some way capture our home cooking, and I egged her on because I knew that she was a very good cook, you mm-hmm. know? and. and she found the book very difficult to do. It took her a long time. Anyway, what came out of this agonized process was a kind of something close to a classic, I think, you know. Um, it is. Samin Rushdie's Indian Cookery, it's called. Mm. And um, and she really did capture the flavor. I mean, not all the recipes are, are memories of my mother's kitchen, but, but that's where the book started. And then she added stuff of her own. So it turns out... She is ridiculously talented.
1: It's food and memories, mm. you know, as we started out. Food and stories, food and family. Mm. Food and comfort, because food is comfort, isn't it? Mm. And so if I were to ask you, as I ask everyone that my last question, if you have a comfort food, what would it be?
2: Well, I mean, my comfort food is, is always going to be Indian food. So it's, a, a, it's something very simple, not, not at all... Complicated. I'm very happy with yellow dal and white rice. Huh. One of the bad habits I have, which you're not supposed to do, is to have bread at the same time as rice. You're supposed to have either or. Okay. You know, um, if you're having dal and rice, you shouldn't also mm-hmm. have a chapati or mm-hmm. etc. But I do. So, so, that, <laughs> so that that that's my bad behaving com- comfort food. Yes.
1: Thank you, Saman. I love you. Thank you. This holiday season, if you can't come to the River Cafe, the River Cafe will come to you. Our beautiful gift boxes are full of ingredients we cook with and design objects we have in our homes. River Cafe olive oil, Tuscan chocolates, Venetian glasses, a Florentine Christmas cake made in our pastry kitchen, and more. We ship them everywhere. To find out more or to place your order, visit shoptherivercafe.co.
0: River Cafe Table 4 is a production of iHeartRadio and Atomized Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
2: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip.
0: I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board.